Um, we have been going through, as John said, a sermon series called Counterfeit. Um, today we're going to be looking, we're going to be bouncing around the Bible some, but we're going to be looking mainly at Matthew 5 and Revelation 20. So if you want to earmark those right now, you can. Um, I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church. You should do that at any church, but particularly this summer, I encourage you to do that because as often as the weather is nice, we're going to be outside, which means there's no screen to put up the scripture. So to make sure that I'm not making stuff up up here, you should bring your Bible. All right. I want to start this sermon with a simple question. Why did Jesus come into the world? And this is an audience participation question. Someone, can someone tell me why did Jesus come into the world? Say again. Because you are a sinner. Well, since he is my father, I can attest to that fact. <laughs> yes, he came <clears throat> because you are a sinner and because I'm a sinner. But that's not actually the real reason why he came. I know that may shock some of you. Does anybody else have a guess or an answer? To offer his salvation through death on the cross. It's pretty amazing that we have a God that would be willing to die in our place, to pay our penalty for sin. But what if I were to tell you that that's actually not the correct answer either, or at least not fully. Yes, because he wanted a relationship with us. That's another thing to think about. It's one to, thing to have a God who pays a price for us, but he pays a price for us because he wants to be in relationship with us, his creation. It's an amazing thought. Still not actually 100% correct. Because he loves us. Yes. That is another amazing thing. Not all religions truly worship or follow a God who is loving the way our God is loving. Not exactly correct. To appease the wrath of God. To take to take the wrath and the punishment. How many people do you know in your life would do that for you in a situation? You get in big, big trouble. And someone says, you know what? I'll go to prison in your place. I'll take the death penalty in your place. Not many people will do that. Still not the answer I'm looking for. Would you like to hear the answer? So here's the thing. Jesus actually answered this question. And we find it in John chapter 18, verse 37. If anyone wants to look that up, he says this. He's standing before Pontius Pilate and he says, In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to, anybody have it? Testify to the truth. Probably not the answer you were thinking it was going to be. 
But this is Jesus' own words. The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. So that must mean that truth is important, right? In fact, he goes on in that verse and he says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So if everyone on the side of truth listens to him, that also tells you that there's another side, the side of not truth, right? Just a couple chapters earlier in John 16, he's talking about the Holy Spirit with his disciples and he says, but when he, the spirit of truth, he refers to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Do you think this issue of truth is important to Jesus? I would say it's not just important, it's critical. We oftentimes, when we think of the Holy Spirit, we probably think of it as this kind of mysterious thing, and it probably deals more with our emotions and how we feel, and it comes and goes. Maybe it shows up when there's miracles happening. But how often do you think of it being the spirit of truth that guides you into all truth? What was it that Jesus said sets us free? It is the truth that sets you free. And you heard John say this morning, I'm the way, the truth is critical to being a Jesus follower. Now, some of you don't know, or maybe some others outside of our church may think that, well, we're squabbling over these trivial and peripheral issues in this series called Counterfeit. You know, we need to just focus on the main thing, the important thing. Jesus loves you and me. God is love, right? Well, it is important to focus on the main things. But these ideas and concepts creep in subtly. Most of the time, you do not realize that you or even your church have inadvertently accepted and believed a false teaching. How many of you have ever seen the movie, The Devil Wears Prada? Okay, now I really enjoy this movie. Of course, as a man, I probably care about fashion more than the average male does. But I think most people would like this movie just because it is so well done. Meryl Streep and Anne Hathaway star in this movie. And Meryl Streep, as always, does a brilliant job. Anne Hathaway is this, uh, she plays this character, Andy. She's a young journalist student, just got out of college, and she wants to do some serious journalism. She wants to make a difference in the world. But as she's trying to find a job, the only thing she could find is to be an assistant to the editor-in-chief of an iconic fashion magazine. So she thinks that, well, this is not really what I want to do but it's a job, I need to get into this business. So she ends up being the assistant to Meryl Streep's character, Miranda Priestley. And she's, you know, on her probably second day on the job, and Miranda Priestley, Meryl Streep's character, is sitting with a bunch of fashion people, and they're trying to put an ensemble together for a photo shoot. 
And she's standing there back there taking notes. And they're put, getting this dress and they're putting all these things and they're getting to the point where they're trying to accessorize it. And women, you probably understand this point. It's not just the dress, but you got to get all the accessories, right? So one of these other young ladies grabs these two belts. Now the belts, at least in my mind, look identical, except for the belt buckles. Different belt buckles, same looking, same color leather belt. And this young lady goes, I know, they're so different, right? And they're trying to decide which belt works. So Anne Hathaway's character, Annie, gives a little chuckle. And Miranda Priestley turns around and says, is something funny? And Anne Hathaway says this, both of these belts look exactly the same to me and I'm still learning about this stuff. And Meryl Streep, in her cold, calculated way, says, all this stuff? Oh, okay, you think that this has nothing to do with you. You go to your closet and you select, I don't know, that lumpy blue sweater, for instance, because you are trying to tell the world that you take yourself too seriously to care about what you put on your back. But what you don't know is that sweater is not just blue. It's not turquoise. It's not lapis. It's actually cerulean. And you're also blithely unaware of the fact that in 2002, Oscar de la Renta did a collection of cerulean gowns. And I think it was Yves Saint Laurent, wasn't it, who showed cerulean military jackets? And then cerulean quickly showed up in the collections of eight different designers. And then it filtered down through the department stores and then trickled on down into some tragic casual corner where you no doubt fished it out of some clearance bin. However, that blue represents millions of dollars and countless jobs. And it's sort of comical how you think you've made a choice that exempts you from the fashion industry when in fact you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. This is what happens to us. Concepts that we may have laughed at or shrugged off as fringe a hundred years ago may be mainstream today. What are the things today that we shrug off that our children may take up like that sweater that Anne wore in the movie? Have you ever heard someone say, well, I'm spiritual, just not religious. Sounds good on the surface, doesn't it? But if you've ever really studied the scriptures, it doesn't jive. You can't be just spiritual. You may think you're above that. You only focus on the big picture stuff. But in trying to avoid some of the particulars, you actually change the big picture. Most of you know that I moved up here from Nashville about six years ago. If I were to fly southeast to Nashville as the crow flies, it's about a 400-mile uh, trek. I could go straight there as the crow flies. Now, what if I just changed one degree to the left? It wouldn't seem like much here, right? But by the time I went 400 miles, I would probably easily be in Knoxville three hours away. Maybe not even in the same state. 
You can see how one change, if you continue down that path, you're in a completely different destination. Ideas have consequences. They can lead to a completely different conclusion. So today we're going to be talking about this heresy called universal salvation. Now this concept has been talked about for centuries, but really started to get a true following in America in the 1700s. And it basically says that all people are saved and go to heaven. Sounds nice. I'd like to subscribe to that, right? Kumbaya, everybody get along and we're all saved and we're all going to heaven. If God loves everyone, then he wouldn't send anyone to hell right? A loving God wouldn't do that. But like most heresies, they're based partially on biblical truth. They accept one part of the Bible while dismissing another. What does the Bible really say about salvation? Well, what's the most famous verse about salvation in the Bible? Anybody? John 3.16, probably the most famous verse about salvation in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It is a very inspiring and encouraging verse. And if you think about that, I mean think about it. He doesn't say God loves the Jews. He doesn't say God so loved the elect or the believers he says, the world. And how much did he love the world? So much so that he gave his one and only son to die, to pay the price, as we talked about earlier this, this morning when I asked that question. It's easy to come to the conclusion that if God loves all, then he forgives all and he saves all, right? But what is wrong with that conclusion based on this scripture? Did I finish the sentence? No. For God, let's say it all together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. That changes it, doesn't it? God loves everyone, but does everyone believe? I think the answer is clearly no. You see, there's a distinction between love and forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, we all know this in our daily lives. We just don't always apply it to our spiritual lives or our relationship with God. I mean, think about it. If you have a falling out with someone, you can forgive them. But that doesn't mean that you are reconciled. Until both parties show a desire to come back together, there is no reconciled relationship. Forgiveness is one-sided. You can forgive me, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to choose to be back into relationship with you. Forgiveness is one-sided. Reconciliation requires both sides to cooperate. God loves all, but I don't believe all are reconciled. 
So that's the most famous verse. It's a very simple verse, but it kind of gives you a quick example of what we're talking about with heresies, particularly this one. But let's dive deeper into what Jesus says about salvation. And this is where we're going to come to our first passage, Matthew 5, starting in verse 17. Now, this is part of Jesus's famous Sermon on the Mount. I'm sure you've all probably heard this passage at one time or another, but I'm going to go ahead and read it, starting verse 17 of chapter 5, if I can get back there, because the wind blew my spot away. Here we go. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's break this down a little bit. The first verse says that Jesus will not, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he talks about not one letter, not one stroke of a letter. Some of us may have even heard about this this term jot and tittle. Basically, he's saying, I'm, I'm here to make sure every T is crossed and every I dotted. Now think about this. If we don't dot an I, we may mistake it if it's cursive for a cursive E or maybe an L. If we don't cross a T, we might mistake it for an I. That could change the word, right? He's saying not one word and not one stroke will go away. But in Hebrew, it's even, it's even deeper than that. Because you can take a letter and different parts of the letter, different strokes have different meanings. They have different emotions. So Jesus is saying... He didn't come to change a single meaning or emotion behind the law. Then we get to this next section in verse 19 where he's saying those that don't follow even the least of these laws and teach others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But those that do follow the law and teach others to do so will be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But what's interesting about that, you're seeing the contrast between people who follow the law and people who don't. Both are in the kingdom of heaven. Right? It's not till you get to the next verse where he says, but if your righteousness, righteousness is not, as, not greater than those of the Pharisees and the scribes, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So, what is righteousness based on? Well, it can't, be, it can't be based on us following the law, doing good deeds, right? Because in the verse before, those that do and those that don't both end up in heaven. Some are greater, some are less, but they're both there. Where do we get our righteousness from? That's right. Usually when there's a question in the church, 
70, 80% of the time, it's Jesus, right? Jesus, our faith in Jesus makes us righteous. But the Pharisees, their righteousness came from following the law, from their positions, their titles, their birthright. That is not what brings you salvation. We can see the two, the two uh, um, heresies, the first ones that we learned about that John talked about here in this picture, antinomianism, which is the cheap grace. Basically, because we have grace, we can live however we want, right? Well, there's still consequences to that. Those that don't follow will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And then there's Pelagianism. That's where, well, I believe in Jesus for my righteousness, but I also have to do, make sure I live a good life just to make sure I get into heaven. And we see that that doesn't have any issue on our salvation. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. Both of these things matter, but for different reasons. And only your faith in Jesus matters for salvation. Now, if you think that this is just a one-time thing in Scripture, or it's just something Jesus said one time, and you're never going to find it anywhere else, we're going to go to Revelation 20, or we're going to see the exact same thing. So let's turn to Revelation 20. It's at the very end of the Bible. It's the third to last chapter. And let me just set this up for you. This is... Judgment day. This is the final judgment day, okay, that's happening. Right after this is when you read about the new heavens and the new earth coming, and God wipes away every tear and there's no more pain. Okay, this is the big judgment day. And starting in verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it. The earth and the heaven fled from his presence, no place was found on them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And all were judged according to what they had done. So you notice that there's two different types of books here. There's books, plural where we are judged based on what we have done, our actions. But then there's this other book called the book of life, singular. Then as I read on, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. You see the distinction? There's actually two judgments going on here. Everyone is being judged by what they did. But only the ones whose names were not in the book of life were thrown into the lake of fire. You know, this reminds me of a story about a man named Joe. Now, Joe unfortunately passed away. So he's standing in line outside the gate of heaven and St. Peter is welcoming people in. And he sees St. Peter having this small conversation with everyone before they go in. And as he's getting a little closer, he's about, you know, 
free people from getting there. And he can finally hear what St. Peter's saying. And St. Peter's asking the man, a couple people in front of him, welcome, were you faithful to your wife? And the man says, yes, yes, I was. And he says, well, welcome to the kingdom of God. Here are the keys to a brand new Rivian. So the man gets in this brand new shiny Rivian that was made in normal Illinois. And he starts driving down the streets of gold by all the mansions. Then the next guy comes up. And of course, Joe is sitting there going, man, I sure hope he's not asking that question to everybody. But sure enough, the guy right in front of him gets asked the same question. Welcome. Were you faithful to your wife? And the man goes, well, mostly. There was that one time. So St. Peter says, welcome. And he gives him the keys to a brand new Prius. So the man gets in his Prius and he drives off. Not quite as fast as the Rivian because it's a Prius. I have to say that because our pastor drives a Prius. So it's just a little dig. But he drives off down the streets of gold. So then finally Joe gets up there and he's like, oh man, he's got kind of his head hanging down. And St. Peter says, welcome, were you faithful to your wife? And he kind of sheepishly looks up and he's like, no, no, I really wasn't. He says, well, welcome to the kingdom of God. Here's your skateboard. So here's Joe and he's like, you know, wide eyed looking at all the mansions and he's going down the road on his skateboard and he sees this Rivian. Sure looks like the one that the guy in front of him had parked on the side of the street. And he gets up and here's the guy just over his steering wheel, just crying, just heartbroken. And he goes up to, what is going on with you? Look around us, we're in heaven. And, and you got this brand new Rivian. It's like, why are you so sad? He's like, I know, but I just saw my wife go down the street on a skateboard. Now, I know that that's silly, but Jesus said, those that followed my laws will be great in the kingdom of God, and those that didn't will be least, but they're all in the kingdom of heaven. But the ones whose names are not written in the book of life, the ones who had faith in Jesus and Jesus alone, those are the ones that aren't there. You see the difference? So, let's take this passage now and put it in context of universal salvation. Well, if God loves all people, then God forgives all people. And if God forgives all people, well then, maybe all people should be saved. And then all people are reconciled back to God. But as I talked about, there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. But most people don't think through that all the time. Well, if we're all saved and reconciled back to God, then there's really no judgment, is there? There's no need for hell or this lake of fire that's talked about in there because no one's going there. And if there's no hell, well... There may not be any Satan or any demons or anything like that as well. You know, I don't think we really need this page in this Bible. It doesn't pertain to us. Right? We'll just take that part out. Now, how many of you feel comfortable 
handing this Bible to a new believer. Say, here's the word of God. It's just got a page ripped out, right? Just one page. Doesn't, I don't feel comfortable with it, do you? But yet we have a tendency to do that, whether we're literally ripping the pages out or just ignoring what's on the page. We do that sort of thing all the time. And it's, it's interesting. You don't have to go very far to read this. Just two chapters later in verse 18, it says this. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away that person's share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. God warns about this very thing. And that's what all these heresies do. They either add to or they take away. You know, we talked about getting the direction off just by a little bit where our destination ends up. I looked up in Encyclopedia Britannica the history of universalism. It's the short word for universal salvation. Now, I'd said it, it, took a, it started to gain popularity in the 1700s here in America. But by the end of that century, the end of the 18th century, a new leader came along in that movement. And this man rejected Calvinistic tenets. And he reinterpreted the atonement. He said Jesus' death was not an atonement for our sins. His death was just a demonstration of God's infinite and unchangeable love for his children. Then in the next century, universalism started to form a uh, close relationship with the Unitarians. Now Unitarians, that comes from the word unity, basically means that all gods are the same. If we are all saved, but we don't all seem to worship the same God, then Muhammad Buddha, Jesus, they all lead us to the same God. We're just taking different paths up the same mountain. And finally, in 1960, they actually joined and became the Unitarian Universalist Association and had a formal merger in 61. They also started rejecting miraculous elements of the Bible. And although still considered ties to Christianity... Today, they started exploring, or not today, but this, this last century, they started exploring the universal elements of religion and seeking closer relationships with non-Christian religions. Pretty soon, that one degree off takes us to a place that doesn't sound like Orthodox Christianity at all. I'll say it again. Ideas have consequences. So, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Sounds nice. But without balance and context, we can end up at a place that doesn't look like Christianity at all. So in conclusion, 
This series is called Counterfeit. And when you hear that word, you know a counterfeit is a fake. And oftentimes we think of the word counterfeit in terms of money. A counterfeit bill, right? Well, do you know how the FBI trained to spot counterfeit money? They study the real thing. They don't study the fakes. They study what a real dollar bill looks like so they can spot a fake because they know what is real. And this needs to be the same for us as Christians. You know, I think one of the best things that this church has ever decided to do is to read the Bible together this year. I think it's awesome. And I believe it's going to change this church. Because you can be fooled if you only know part. But it's a lot harder to be fooled if you know all of Scripture and its context. You know, when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan tempted him by quoting Scripture. But Jesus, knowing all Scripture, quoted other Scripture back and put everything back into context and perspective. Now, if you're behind in your reading, don't give up. Maybe instead of the one-year plan, you need to be on the two-year plan. I'll, 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 be, uh, I'll confess to you guys, it's a little embarrassing, but the first time I read the Bible from cover to cover, I was probably on the eight-year plan before I finally finished it. But I did, and I'm thankful that I did. You can't spot a fake unless you know the real thing. So I want to end with the same question I began. Why did Jesus come into the world? To bear witness to the truth. And it is the truth that will set us free. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for not just your love, but for the fact that you are truth. That your spirit is the spirit of truth. Lord, that you desire to guide us into all truth. And that the truth will set us free. Jesus, one of your names is truth. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, I pray that we, as individuals and as a church, are able to have our eyes opened, Lord. Help us to see the areas in our life and in the world that are false. Lord, that, that may sound good, but that eventually lead to destruction. They lead to death and sin. Lord, help us to be a church that is founded on your truth. And just like Paul says, Lord, I pray that you give us, give us grace, give us courage to speak the truth in love. Lord, truth without your love is cold. But loving outside of truth really isn't love at all because it leads to destruction. Lord, be with this congregation. Thank you for being our God. We ask that you help us to be your people. 
And Lord, I specifically pray for the person who needs you the most this morning, Lord, that you be with them. And also for the person here who thinks they need you the least. We all need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.